We read again from the letter written to Timothy by his mentor, who's helping Timothy in the tricky task of church leadership. They had lost the early simplicity. <laughs> they had lost the early simplicity that they had. Tricky. That's it. Oh, it's the accent. <laughs> They'd lost the early simplicity that they had as Christ followers. And as a result, it had led them into all sorts of trouble and messes, including using godliness as a way to get rich quick. So from 1 Timothy 6. Yet true godliness with contentment is itself great wealth. After all, we brought nothing with us when we came into the world, and we can't take anything with us when we leave it. So if we have enough food and clothing, let us be content. But people who long to be rich fall into temptation and are trapped by many foolish and harmful desires and plunge them into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. And some people craving money have wandered from the true faith and pierced themselves with many sorrows. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. That, <clears throat> that was not the offertory. <coughs> hey, Tim, can you grab me a bottle of water, please? <clears throat> Took a little <coughs> effort. So this week I was thinking about my, my talk today and was experiencing what you might call sermon block. It's a regular occurrence, and when it happens, I have to mix things up a little bit. That is, I have to find something else to do for a little while, move on to some other work, some other project, maybe dive into those 973 unanswered emails that are waiting for me. But most times I take a walk, you know, push away from the screen, get away from the books and the text and go outside fresh air and all that. So I took a walk this week with my two creative partners who often sit with me providing silent encouragement. This is Toby on your left and Mo, the Wonder Dogs. <clears throat> a quick, uh, thank you, Tim. Everybody, thank you, Tim. Thank you, Tim. Thank you, Tim. <clears throat> A quick word about these two. First, there's Toby. Oh, look at him. He's been with us about eight years. Uh, he's the old man, the king, the enforcer, the boss. Mo came to us later under unusual circumstances. Just hold him right there for a second, Garrett. Mo showed up at the home of Tom and Cindy Talty a few years ago, one hot summer day. Looking, as we would say up in the Georgia mountains, looking a little wormy. Thin, hungry, thirsty, ragged. The Talties found him outside their house. He was trying to collect drops of water from their little dripping faucet. And uh, they're good people. They immediately took him in, but the Talties are also cat people. Lots of cats. And Mo, being a terrier of some sort, was a bad match in a cat family, shall we say. 
And Cindy said, hey, could you find a place for this dog? And that's not the strangest pastoral request that's ever been made to me, but I said, sure, we'll find him a home, and I took him to our house. And uh, Cindy said, oh, no, this will never do. Toby does not like him. And if Toby doesn't like him, he can't stay. And Toby didn't like him. And Cindy didn't like him. And it was bad and it was bloody. And so I began this search for Mo a new home, but not really. <laughs> because as you can see, we were already pals. In my heart, I knew he was a good dog, and in my heart, I knew Toby was a spoiled brat, and in my heart, I knew Cindy would come around, so all of my attempts to gift him to someone else kept failing, and finally, I said, look, it looks just like he's going to have to stay here with us, and it took a few weeks, but he wormed his way into Toby's heart, and he wormed his way into Cindy's heart, and he is now today so, so devoted to Cindy. And I'll hold him sometimes in my arms and I'll say, you know that you're alive because of me. <laughs> and he gives me a knowing look. You know that no one else in this house wanted you but me. And I put him down and he goes and runs to Cindy. <laughs> I don't understand. But this I know. Mo is the most consistent source of joy, I think, in our family's home. Now, he's joyful. He's happy. He's an idiot. You can pick up his ear, look inside, see straight through to the other side. And as I mentioned earlier, he's a terrier of some sort. What does that mean? Quoting from the AKC. Feisty and energetic are two of their primary traits. Terriers were bred to hunt, chase down and kill vermin and small animals. Terriers make great pets, but they do require determination on the part of the owner because they can be stubborn and have high energy levels. This is, I can testify, all true. Mo hates small animals. He hates lizards. He hates frogs. He hates birds. He hates cats. They are all on his list lot, hit list, and he has had varying success with each of these. But what he wants more than anything else in the world is this. <laughs> so I return to my walk to overcome this sermon, this week's sermon block. Let's go, boys, I say, and I leash them up, and out the door we go. They're doing their thing, man. Tails are wagging, noses are in the wind. I'm thinking on this talk, this text that says, money is the root of all kinds of evil. That's a lot to think about. And, you know, you could say the obvious things, but what, what, what am I going to do with this text? And it's then that Mo inspires me. We are coming through a stand of tall pine trees when it happened. Mo, in an instant, in a flash, a strike, of, a strike of lightning got away from me. Does your dog ever get away from you when you've got him by the leash? There was a fat, fuzzy squirrel not ten feet away from us. And Mo bolted for this squirrel. And the squirrel was just about as close to Mo as he was the closest tree. 
and the squirrel bolts and runs. Mo, hot on his trail. And I thought for a moment, today's your day, boy. You are going to get this squirrel. And the squirrel was moving so slow because he was carrying a pine cone bigger than he was. And he's running with this pine cone. And Mo's like, oh, he's mine, he's mine. And he, just before he gets to the tree, realizing that things are going to go bad, he made a decision that saved his life. He dropped the pine cone. And he, just, he didn't just drop it. He threw it like the millstone that it was about to drag him to the bottom of the sea. And he didn't just throw it. He threw it into Mo's face. Mo thought he had the squirrel. Remember, he's not the brightest star in the sky. All he had was pine bark. And of course, then you have all the jumping and the barking and the squeaking and squawking from the tree. And meanwhile, Toby, the old man, is like, I knew you wasn't going to catch him. <laughs> verily, verily, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you for coming today. Let us pray, serve communion, and go on our way. I could almost do that. Because it's almost that simple, the text today. The truth. Get a hold of something, a possession, money, something you own. Cling to it greedily, guardily, and these foolish, harmful desires, this craving will trap you. It will plunge you into ruin and destruction. It will pierce you with many sorrows, the text says. You have to let it go, as Paul says to Timothy, and run away from such evil things. It will save your life. You've heard of stop, drop, and roll. Stop, drop, and run. Stop these foolish desires of chasing to get more and more. Drop them. To cling to them is to risk your soul. And run. Get away from them. Save yourself. So much misery and so much destruction. That's not just the lesson from nature, from a squirrel clinging to a pine cone that almost cost him his life. That's the bi biblical lesson. That's the lesson of human experience over the course of world history. Greed is a trap. And clinging to possessions is a death sentence. The love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Money is the root of all evil? That's not what it said. The love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Now, this isn't original with Paul. He didn't coin this proverb. He didn't come up with it. There was a man named Phocyclides who lived 500 years before Paul. And his words are preserved, a few of them. And he said it first. The love of money, how he put it, is the mother of all evils. 560 years before the Apostle Paul was born. Seneca, who was a Greek Stoic philosopher at the same time as Paul. Literally, he and Paul born probably within two or three years of one another and both died within two or three years of each other. Seneca says, Every evil of the mind springs from the desire for what 
does not belong to us. And then put Paul's words alongside of those. The love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Paul is parroting these words. Collective, common, conclusive wisdom of the ages. In contemporary times, the wisdom of this proverb has best been explored by this man, René Girard. He was a French anthropologist, historian, philosopher, Catholic theologian. His work is far-reaching, and since he died just a few years ago, his influence has not reached its peak. It continues to grow and will grow probably throughout the entire 21st century. My favorite concept of his is something that he calls scapegoating, and I don't have time to get into it today, but he basically says this, that every group, every society... In time, when there is trouble, when there is some kind of crisis, every group always finds a person or group of people to blame for all of their troubles. And they put all the blame on that one group. And down it goes. They do that to save society, literally. Because if the tension and hostility isn't diffused, wars break out. I don't have time to go into that today. Let's have coffee and I'll talk all about that with you because it is a fantastic concept with tremendous theological implications as well. But the other concept of his, I've been reading about him a good bit in the last year, is what he calls mimetic desire. You wish I would stick with squirrels, I know, at this point. But you're smart people. This is good for you. Mimetic desire. Summarized to a fault, gross summarization is this. Every human conflict in the world and in the history of the world comes down to rivalry. We mimic, we imitate, we want what others have. War, cutthroat capitalism, tyranny, murder, Injustice, all the great problems of the world are, so, are sourced in a single sin. We want what is not ours, or we want more than what the next person has. Rivalry, competition sets in. We will do anything to get what it is we want. And quite literally, when we set our sights on those things, all hell breaks loose. And here is the real danger, he says, quoting, Such rivalry cannot be contained to a single person. The struggle to possess what is not ours is contagious. If two individuals desire the same thing, there will soon be a third and then a fourth. This process snowballs because the desire only intensifies as more and more people want the same thing. That's a description of our world right there so much so that the original longing is forgotten Gerard says and what we start mimicking is the hostility we forget what we were fighting about in the first place and we just try to be more angry and more hostile than the other group sound familiar here's an example we'll put it way down here on the on the bottom shelf and you cannot Prove to me that this is wrong. Imagine that there is a playroom somewhere 
for little children. And this playroom has hundreds of toys scattered out on the floor. All the Fisher-Price latest and greatest, safest things. You let the first little four-year-old in by herself. She comes in. She picks up baby shark or whatever it is with the latest toys of her day, something that's safe with no pieces that you can choke on. I understand all that. She picks up the first toy. Her heart lights upon it. It is hers. Let in the second child. What toy will the second child want? Talk to me, parents. What she has. Honey, there's 99 more toys. I want that. Let the third one in. Oh, they're fighting over something that must be precious. The third one joins. The fourth one joins. They all gravitate because desire has fallen upon this one thing. To the point, those of you who parents have multiple children, what do you have to do? Well, there was multiple answers there. I don't know what. <laughs> Different philosophies, I guess. About what you, can do. you have to take that toy out of the mix, essentially. But what's going to happen? Some One of those children, their desire will land on one item and everyone in the room will want it. That is mimetic desire. We see what others want. We mimic that. It leads to competition, to rivalry, to this myth of scarcity. It leads to hate, to violence, exactly as our text says today, to many sorrows, plunging us into ruin and destruction. The love of money, the desire, the rivalry is the root of all kinds of evil. See, the Bible is not the sole depository of truth. Truth is truth no matter where you find it. Paul did not invent this concept or this idea. It has been with us for all of human history because it keeps proving itself over and over again, whether it's the Apostle Paul in the Christian Scriptures with a Hebrew background, Seneca as a Greek philosopher, René Girard as a French philosopher, it's going to keep showing itself over and over again. Why? Because the warning about money and greed has to be repeated generation after generation after generation because we can't learn. It is in our nature to want what does not belong to us. It never goes away. It's the terrier on the edge of the leash. Always ready to pounce. Always ready to consume. Okay, Ronnie, so you're saying then today that we should get rid of all of our money and all of our possessions. Now, if I was a televangelist, I would say, yes, bring them here. <laughs> I am not. And I am not saying that at all. Now, some people do. There are people who give up their possessions because they have learned that for them, money and greed and possession is as dangerous to them as a drink is to an alcoholic. It's too much. So they, they divest themselves of everything. But I'm not saying that you have to do that. Now, we could all do with less. I said, we can all do with less. If you don't believe me, go home and look in your closets. No, I'm not saying that at all. 
I think what the text is teaching us is this. You can own possessions. Don't let your possessions own you. That's the difference. We have this consumeristic consumption lifestyle. So much so that we panic and start selling our stocks if, if consumer confidence falls. It's all built on sand, people. Because there's no, there's no long-term commitment in that. Even as a society, we gauge our economic well-being on if people are spending enough money. Money they usually don't have to spend. We can afford the monthly payments on a lot of things with our wallets. Can our souls pay the interest charges? Is it worth all the anxiety and the discontentment? Is it worth the conflict and the misery? Materialism, commercialism, consumerism, what David Gushy calls the sickness of affluenza. I love that infiltrates our spirits it makes us sick that's what paul is teaching us here along with all these other voices that we've mentioned today and then of course there's the greatest voice of all what jesus said in the sermon on the mount no one can serve two masters for you will hate one and love the other you will be devoted to one and despise the other you cannot serve both god and mammon modern translations use the term money Mammon is probably best with a capital M. It's best illustrated by this painting here of George Watts. This is mammon, as the Jewish rabbis imagined mammon. See, the word mammon in Hebrew used to mean what was entrusted. It's what you gave to the bank for safekeeping. It's what you gave as collateral. What was entrusted. Over time, it came to mean what you put your trust in. In. And Jewish rabbis just went ahead and capitalized the M and realized that greed and mammon was a competitor against God himself. That's where Jesus grabs this concept. George Watts paints this picture of this Jabba the Hut looking guy, horns. He's crushing the people that he's sitting on, bags of money in his lap. And essentially Jesus is saying, you can serve, you know, to quote, the, to quote Bob Dylan, <laughs> you got to serve somebody. It might be the devil, or it might be the Lord, but you're going to have to serve somebody, one or the other. This isn't to make us feel bad today. It's just the truth. Sometimes the anxiety we feel about our financial security is that we are in a tug-of-war trying to follow Jesus while under the power and spell of mammon. We want to be married to the one we love while keeping a mistress on the side, trying to enjoy both worlds. And anyone can be guilty of this, not just someone whose income is six figures or more. It isn't just a rich man's problem. You can be as poor as a dirt farmer and be eat up with greed and striving after more. It is an equal opportunity offender. And it has a corrosive power like little else in our society. I'll finish with an observation and a quote from the great John Wesley. Wesley started out as an Anglican priest. He came to the American colonies, the colonies, as a missionary 30 years before the American Revolution, had a short ministry in Savannah, Georgia. 
He returned to London after a couple of frustrating years, and when he returned to London, he had a conversion of sorts by the Spirit, he says. And he began preaching these open-air meetings, and he broke ranks with the stodginess of the Anglican Church, and the Wesleyan way, as it was known then, became known as Methodism. So all you Methodists have John Wesley to thank for your heritage. He made a discovery 300 years ago. This is from one of his sermons. 300 years ago. No Wall Street, no Amazon Prime, no grotesque abuses of capitalism, no conspicuous consumption. 300 years ago, Wesley discovered that when people came to Christ, they turned into well-mannered, middle-class citizens who began to creep their way up the socioeconomic ladder, and that was good for them and good for society. But the more successful they became, the more reliant they became upon their possessions. They went from entrusting to trusting mammon. Wesley asked this question. What shall we say then? That they should not make money? That they should not be industrious? No. It is the duty of every man to work as hard as he can. But he should not gain all he can by causing injury to another. Nor should we store away money without using it. You might just as well throw your money into the sea as keep it in a bank. God entrusted you with that money that after meeting the needs of your family, you would feed the hungry, clothe the naked, help the stranger, the widow, the orphan, and indeed as far as it will go to relieve the needs of all humankind. How can you, how dare you defraud the Lord by applying it to any other purpose? And his conclusion, thus we would all do well to gain as much as we can so we can save as much as we can so that we can give away all that we can. And that indeed is the word of God for the people of God.